0: My guest today is Professor Francis Shotgun, who is a professor of political science and international affairs and business at the University of Mount Union. Prior to going into academia, he worked in the business consulting industry in Seoul, South Korea. Welcome, Francis. Thank you, Gil. Uh, I want to start with um, your paper on North Korea, the political logic of economic backwardness in North Korea in which you say, given the unsustainable nature of the North Korean economic reality, the present study lays a foundation for a critical inquiry into how and for how long North Korea's monolithic policy-making system can afford to resist the need for pragmatic economic reform measures, including possibly the adoption of a Chinese model of pragmatism, economic liberalization, and opening up could you talk a bit about um, uh, maybe the sort of the history of uh, of North Korea and where they are today?
1: Sure, um, so I mean, uh, as a backdrop to that paper and why I asked the question, certainly it's, I, I looked at the, the relationship between China and North Korea and how that has evolved over the years, certainly growing out of the uh, 1950 to 1953 Korean War, when the yeah. relationship became sort of solidified, a relationship, one might argue, was sort of forged in, in blood and iron, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was an ideological connection, certainly. And um, what I noticed, and other scholars certainly as well, I'm not by by any means the only one who has uh, picked this up. <laughs> it's a, a growing disconnect, which has been for a number of years between North Korea and China. And it's certainly very stark when you look at the trajectory of economic reform and development. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was interesting to see that early on North Korea in terms of economic development and per capita income was slightly higher than China yeah this sort of um, was maintained until about the early 19 or late 1980s and then you began to see a a fundamental divergence when China really doubled down on on economic reform and restructuring in the early 90s Mm. and so that Got me to ask this question: Why a country that is uh, really as closed off as North as North Korea is today has not been able or willing, for that matter, to learn from its neighbors, whether that be South Korea, where there's definitely the the historical, the language, the cultural connection, or for that matter, you know, Japan or China. So North Korea is a unique place in the sense that it could look in any direction and be mm-hmm. examples of economic development success that it could emulate, maybe to, to some degree, not necessarily lock, stock and barrel. But um, then it raises also the question as to why they haven't even been willing to learn from China. Over the years, certainly under Kim, Jong, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, when uh, the few times that he visited the China, the Chinese authorities were always very keen to showcase special economic zones And it was sort of an indirect way to nudge him in the direction of gradual opening up and economic reform. Of course, that hasn't really worked. And uh, so that got me to um, look into this and whether or not there was really that political logic behind it, that they just maybe are not willing to open up because what it means for them is that when they change course economically, it would be an acknowledgement that the policies, that the government had put in place before would have been wrong and for a regime that is um, so keen on uh, maintaining absolute dominance and basically coming across as knowing everything that would be very yeah. astonishing you know acknowledgement for sure
0: to set the to set the context i was looking at the chart that you have in the in the gross domestic product um and I don't know exactly what the y-axis might be but uh, it is uh, so The currently the GDP between North Korea and China is about three orders of magnitude different yeah am I am I reading it correctly um,
1: I would have to look at my own chart here again just to, yeah but um, yeah there was definitely a, a very significant um, you know divergence because I had two charts and I think one might have been on the on the logarithmic uh, scale yeah. Um, so that's where it was a little you know, more difficult uh, to see. Um,
0: yeah. So about, you know, uh, you said it's about 10 trillion, which seems it, uh, we, these are 2014 numbers. China has gone further than that. Uh, but 10 trillion uh, in China, China GDP and uh, North Korea's GDP is about one thousandth of that, which, mm-hmm. which uh, seems intuitive, makes intuitive sense, I think. Yes, um but more importantly, as you point out um North Korea's GDP hasn't grown for nearly fifty years which is which is an incredible thing <laughs> to see uh, and so you know it, so you know those are the numbers and um you know you say that North Korean regime's misguided focus on state building uh through uh, Juche and Sun gun uh, Juche is, is a self-reliance um, strategic mm-hmm. component, Sun gun the military first strategic component. Those policies actively paved the way for development and underdevelopment and systematic dissonance. Uh, and so, so you know, I, I guess North Korea had uh, three leaders, right, since 1980s, is that right?
1: Uh, since yeah, Kim Il Sung, Kim Jong Il, and then currently Kim Jong Un, yes.
0: Okay, okay. And what you know, what is the sort of the policy differences between them, or was there any?
1: In initially, I don't think there was a lot of difference between Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il, um, yeah. the the uh, the father and the son. But what we noticed um, in sort of the uh, the latter years of uh, Kim Jong Il was that there was some experimentation with not exactly market reforms, but there was a, a loosening of some of the regulations. Some uh, people were allowed to sell their excess goods uh, at, at market prices. There was a uh, uh, an attempt at a, uh, a currency reform that didn't really work out. But as soon as uh, it, it went a little bit out of hand, the government cracked down again. Hmm. And so you, this, this is sort of similar to what we might have seen maybe under um, – uh, Mao Zedong in China, when whenever some when the the technocrats um, might have become a little bit too successful, then there was sort of a a retrenchment of sorts. Where we were initially very hopeful was when uh, Kim Jong Un took over. Hmm. Um, in, in one of his early speeches, he actually alluded to the fact that um, the North Korean people should not have to tighten their belts anymore and they should enjoy the full benefits of, of their economic system. So it led a lot of people to think that maybe he could become sort of the uh, North Korean version of uh, China's Deng Xiaoping, the, mm. the, the paramount leader who sort of led China on the path to economic opening up and, and reform. Right. And um, those early hopes were certainly dashed, um, but nowadays, um, very recently, actually, in the last, uh, I think, it was the last week or the last two weeks, there was an acknowledgement by the North Korean regime that the current five-year plan was actually not working the way it was supposed to, and that they might actually revisit that one at a uh, at a party meeting in in January. So that might be sort of a very subtle acknowledgement that um, they do recognize. Things will have to change. It could have been compounded, of course, by uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic because North Korea, the limited exchange it, it has had with China, the economy right now seems to be a lot more closed off because the borders are, are very much closed right now. The, the North Koreans were trying really not to have cases of COVID-19 in the country. That doesn't mean, of course, that they don't have any and they probably wouldn't acknowledge yeah. Uh, but uh, the economy certainly has taken a, a hit um, and uh, trade. Not a, I, not a lot of data yeah. coming
0: out. <laughs> That's a problem, right? So, uh, exactly. So, <laughs> if I remember correctly, uh, Francis, that Kim Jong-un um, is Western educated guy, right? Did he have his education yeah. in, in Europe?
1: Yes, uh, he was apparently at a boarding school in, in Switzerland for a number of years. And and that exactly is what also led to some initial hopes that maybe that Western exposure and have rub- rubbed off on him and uh, might have sort of sown
0: the seeds for a more reformist mentality. Right. And those hopes were dashed uh, quickly. And, and as you said before, uh, they are sort of at the center. They can look uh, in many directions and see what other countries have done. So you say in the paper, Even if expectations of North Korea emulating the China model of economic development in its totality are misplaced, it's nonetheless reasonable to assume that the incontrovertible evidence of China's economic reform and development success since the early 80s would compel the North Korean regime to consider embarking on the path of an ideological and economic pragmatism and learn from China's economic reform measures in tangible ways. But it did none of that, right?
1: Yeah, well, uh, well, at the very least, extremely, extremely little. They did have some examples of um, sort of special economic zones. Uh, one was on the border with uh, China. And of course, we also have the, the Kaesong Industrial Park, which is a, uh, a joint venture actually with South Korea. It is mm-hmm. in the north. Uh, it is staffed with North Korean workers, but South Korean companies were locating some basic manufacturing there. It has since been um, you know, closed again uh, after all the tensions between the North and the South over a number of years. So there's not a lot of activity there, if any, uh, right now. But uh, in the North, we had some uh, special economic zones on the borders with, with China and North Korea, but it was uh, with uh, Russia as well. But it was not on the same level as what you saw in China when they opened up with their... Um, uh, Geiger Kaifang, the reform and restructuring policy in the late 70s, early 80s, the open door policy, really bringing and inviting foreign investors to uh, to set up shop. That kind of dramatic push has not happened on the same level in uh, in North Korea.
0: Yeah, and and China obviously uh, being close by has a lot of interest in North Korea. But you say. The conventional assumption that the China-North Korea relationship is anchored in a strong foundation of political and ideological perspectives, covered uh, misses a larger point that beneath the surface of the alliance relations, the two countries share very few common interests. Um, yeah, could you expand on that? Sure. I mean, on, on the one hand, a lot of people might say,
1: well, there are similarities in terms of their political systems communist or maybe more sort of Stalinist really in in North Korea, but the ideology was similar, central planning was a norm. So there should be enough of that common mindset and commonality for North Korea to look at when you diverge from that. It doesn't mean that your system, your political system necessarily unravels because what the Chinese have been able to do up until now was certainly push economic reform, and still maintain that political stability for the communist party. So if if that was a concern for North Korea, the fear that once you open up, you know, you open the Pandora's box as it were, and um, economic reform could lead to political reform pressures. Well, that hasn't happened in in China. Um, The case of course in North Korea might very well be that you have a, a family dynasty essentially. And, um, you have to rely on the support of of the military. The military was vested in in the system. Mm. And uh, when you push for change, of course, all the vested interests they might say, well, what is in it for me? Am I still going to maintain uh, my interests? Is my situation going to uh, increase? Am I benefiting more? Am I benefiting less? Mm. There may be that kind of hesitation for people to engage in something new. Where they don't know where exactly it's going to uh, to uh, to go
0: what is that do you know this francis what's the also what's the people strength of north korean military in number of people do you know
1: um i think it's on the order of maybe about uh, and this is not a hard and fast number by any means, uh, but it's um it could be about a um, one and a half million if not even closer to two if you counted the fact that everybody's virtually where the males are virtually uh, drafted into the military or might mm. be in the reserve but it's it's a very large military in that sense yeah not necessarily a very well equipped one by any means
0: yeah so so it's a it's a it's a significant percentage of the population and so any uh, changes you would try to make uh, is going to be, essentially, you have to demonstrate that it is beneficial for the military, it sounds to me,
1: right? In, yeah, in, in many ways, that you, you have to give them some kind of assurance that there's something in it for them, or at least their, their situation, their economic situation, their benefits, uh, the perks that they have gotten, that um, you know, they would not be at risk. Because the moment, of course, that that's the case, then the military would be, or any entity for that matter, would not be in support in support of any reform, that would be disadvantageous uh, to them.
0: Yeah, and you know there was some hope in 2011. You say in the paper, if the very real prospect of no longer being able to take unqualified Chinese support for granted, then perhaps a wave of revolutionary uprisings that engulfed much of Middle East and North Africa in uh, 2011, combined with the death of Kim Jong Il uh, in December 2011 would help to underscore the urgency for a new logic of economic development. Um, but it really, really didn't do uh, much at all, right?
1: Yeah, we, we only saw early on, as I uh, mentioned before, that's when uh, Kim Jong-un uh, gave that one speech. I think it was in, um, in, in January of 2012, if I remember correctly, where he did sort of indirectly allude to the fact that um, you know, he might push for economic reform or some uh, some building uh, projects, which which he has done. Yeah. But it's not exactly anything that benefits the, the population as a whole. I mean, when you build a, a ski resort <laughs> the, the poorest of the poor in the country, they, they don't benefit from it. Um, if um, if you build more apartment blocks, of course, in, in Pyongyang, which is where the, uh, the elite lives anyhow, uh, that may not trickle down to the rest of the country. So I think there's always a disconnect between certainly what's going on in Pyongyang and the rest of the, the country. And if the uh, the developments around 2010, 2011, with the Arab Spring, uh, the death of uh, Kim Jong-il uh, gave rise to that hope that maybe changes afoot, um, yes, those, uh, those hopes were dashed. Um, and um, there's no indication right now hmm. We see a sort of a a dramatic change in that there were instances where China has sort of very much signaled and then China is basically the only lifeline, the economic lifeline that North Korea has today. Yeah. Um, If China were to say or decide from one day to the next to cut that umbilical cord, well, then the North Korean economy would certainly implode. Of course, the Chinese are not going to do that. Because if and when they were to do that, they would see a flood of North Korean refugees crossing the Yalu River into northeastern China, which is the the Rust Belt of China. So there are a lot of socioeconomic uh, problems there already. But the Chinese have, on occasion, sort of sent signals, especially at the height of the the, uh, the the nuclear tensions on the Korean Peninsula, that they were not very happy with the direction that the North Korean regime was taking. Certainly under Kim Jong-un, because under his rule, when his father died, we saw a, a dramatic uptick in missile tests, in, um, in nuclear tests, which uh, raised concerns from a strategic and security point of view for China, because it would give the U.S. an excuse to relocate a lot more of their military assets in Northeast Asia under the pretext, of course, that they would be directed at North Korea and as yeah. meant as a deterrent factor. But the Chinese would, of course, also realize that well, there's nothing that would prevent prevent those same military assets to serve as a deterrent to uh, against uh, China, of course. So that's where you saw that divergence of of viewpoints, and the the Chinese indirectly sort of signaled to the North Koreans that you cannot count on unqualified support for us anymore, because your actions actually. Sort of undermine our own national interests and potentially put all the gains that we have made, the economic gains, and then also the uh, the broader regional gains and the ambitions that China has in the region. They put that at risk, and so that's where you began to see sort of tensions emerge. And some people had described the relationship uh, in very colorful terms that it was a relationship as close as lips and teeth. So focusing on the on the ideological. Um, similarities, which are not there anymore. As a right. matter of fact, when China started embarking on economic reforms and then doubled down in the 90s and again in the 2000s, it became much more capitalist than it would ever be communist these days. Both hmm. Koreans essentially looked at China as sort of having betrayed the ideological cause. In the, uh, the major North Korean military academy in the early 2010s, uh, according to some South Korean intelligence reports, there were even banners posted that basically labeled the Chinese as uh, turncoats and our enemies, which is mm. a very significant uh, development. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so... You know, I, I think uh, I think you you touched on this already when Kim Jong- uh, uh, uh Kim Jong-un take over took over. He started some sort of management uh, programs, uh, maybe because of his western um, uh, western education. but there was nothing really there from an implementation perspective. So it sort of you know went back to how it used to be. Uh, and this idea of political independence, economic independence, and military independence as sort of the axes of strategy uh, is really what they have been attempting to pursue, right? So almost, I would imagine, almost all the GDP is going into just protecting themselves uh, from, a, from a military perspective.
1: To, to a large extent, that's, uh, that's probably still true. Yeah, There, there was a, a slight difference um, where under Kim Jong Il you had the the so-called sun gun policy, which was really the military first. So yeah. whatever limited resources you would have, um, the military would be first in line, and whatever scraps you had left over would be then used for you know other economic projects and so on. Under Kim Jong Un we saw a slight change there. He talked about the Byung-jin line, which essentially tries to have it both ways, where you focus on um, on the nuclear program and on economic reform mm. um, but um, I think the the balance is still skewed towards the military aspect a little bit more than the economic one for sure and um, or if if it is more or less equal then uh, it would be an example of mismanagement on the economic reform side because we haven't seen that much progress now, yeah. there are people that have gone to North Korea. I was at a conference in Seoul on the, on North Korean studies a few years, quite a few years ago. And there, there were other Western uh, scholars as well who had a chance to go to North Korea. And they said, well, there are some changes at foot. You see more, you know, uh, building projects, but certainly mostly in, in Pyongyang again. Uh, it's mm. that you see, you know, massive uh, infrastructure projects being... Um, implemented uh, across the country for that matter.
0: Right right. yeah and, and as you as you say you know they, they have a they have an example very close by to learn from. Uh, but you say contrary to North Korea's attempt to focus on economic and military development simultaneously as you mentioned, China adopted a full modernization process. Beginning with agriculture and subsequently expanding in stages into industry, science, and technology and military without being unduly consumed by concerns over regime survival. Um, and you'll we'll talk more about China uh, after this. Uh, it's sort of interesting, you know, the, um, the path that China has taken, uh, there are other countries who attempted that too, uh, to have some sort of a strategic, systematic path due uh, to, to higher level of development. And um, for example, India had, you know, something similar, but China has done it um, much, much better than its, uh, than its democratic neighbor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, so, I think that Yeah, go ahead.
1: I think that's partly due to, well, the, the leadership that uh, China did have uh, under Deng Xiaoping, um, where you had, I mean, you, you need a, a visionary leader, somebody who's not necessarily too afraid to, to rock the boat or bring a, or push through some change. But the, the key for the Chinese success, of course, was they didn't just open the door uh, completely and um, change the system entirely, you know, lock, stock and barrel from, from day one. What, uh, what was really at the heart of the Chinese system is really that pragmatism. Yeah. You try something new and then you, you test it first on a smaller scale, which is where their special economic zones came in. And I guess that is what the Chinese wanted to bring across to the North Koreans. As I mentioned before, when Kim Jong-il would go to China, the Chinese authorities always took him uh, to special economic zones. There were even pictures of where he was touring uh, the, um, uh, the the financial district in, in Shanghai or some of the... Uh, special economic zones and special technology development zones on the outskirts of shanghai and with the backdrop of the shanghai skyline the pudong area and the message was always very clear from the chinese side you know this is what you can also achieve if we pulled it off you could do that as well hmm. but the, the the difference i think for the longest time was in the kim jong-il the father of kim jong-un certainly was no Deng Xiaoping. yeah
0: um
1: and uh, so the Deng Xiaoping had that mindset. Um, he had these famous sayings that it doesn't matter if the cat is black and black or white, as long as it's, uh, it catches mice, it's a good cat.
0: <laughs> yeah. you, you
1: cross the river by feeling the stones. So mm. it, was, it was a slow but deliberate process. Right. And um, I think that the longer that North Korea would sort of put it off, the, the more difficult it's going to be to push through meaningful economic reform because anything that you push through when you do it belatedly is not gonna reap the benefits that you think it will have, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it
0: underscores uh, the importance of leadership, right? So um, so I want to jump into uh, a book chapter that you have on China taking center stage, China's new role uh, of assertiveness in the 21st century international system in which you, you, you have a quote from President Xi, uh, it says, that tomorrow of the Chinese nation can well be called, a time will come to brave the wind and ride the waves. Since 1840, we have struggled continuously and have unfolded a, a brilliant prospect for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation in the territory of China. And he says, all of us feel that we are closer to the subjective of, of, of this uh, rejuvenation of the Chinese nation at any other time, uh, more than any other time in history. So, uh, and then you talk about, again, uh, sort of the history of China, the leadership, and this is a very, very strategic deliberate process uh, that China has gone through over 40, 50 years, right, to get here. Um
1: yeah, and and some people would of course say to, to come back to what you had mentioned before on the on the previous paper, the the four modernizations that China has had. So that was a it was very strategic, but you focus you know with uh, you start with agriculture uh, and then you focus on this sort of um on manufacturing and then on science and technology, and then the military. So there was a logic behind it. Hmm. um and and th- this other paper that you uh, referred to here, I should highlight that it's it's not in print yet. It will be in um, in uh, in an upcoming book that will be coming out later this year. Okay. Um. And the, the whole um, uh, message uh, here is that yes, China is sort of reclaiming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what it sees as its rightful position in the world, and that this comes back from that mindset of having been uh, you know the Zhongguo, the the. the Chinese term for, for China, Middle Kingdom. Mm. So where China for the longest time was sort of seen as the, the center of the universe. Um, and you look at the, the pronouncements that yes. the Chinese leadership has now when they talk about a uh, Zhongguomeng or a, a China dream. Um, so you know it's the China dream on two levels, depending mm. on how you interpret it. Some people actually translate Zhongguomeng as Chinese dream, which then would mean it's it's a dream for the average Chinese person that yeah. my um, my situation in life is going to improve. I climb up the socioeconomic ladder. I will make it into the the middle class. I will have my you know the Chinese version of, you know, of your you know your house with the garden fence and the dog and so on, kind of like the a Chinese version of the American dream, if you will. <laughs> and, um, then other people have said, yeah, but it's also the China dream. So that's the, the dream of the Chinese nation. And this is where uh, Xi Jinping, the current the president, yeah, talks about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And what he's actually referring to then, and that date that he also goes back to the 1840s, that is really when um, China saw a dramatic decline when uh, it lost a number of uh, of conflicts with the British, the so-called Opium Wars. Then there was a a conflict with Japan in uh, 1894-95 that it lost. Uh, It saw territory being occupied and then being given for 99 years or released rather for 1990 years uh, by the British, you know, Hong Kong and the the whole Kowloon Peninsula, Macau. Um, And it's it's that kind of um, national humiliation um, that the Chinese are, are constantly talking about, uh, the watcher, mm. uh, 100 years of, of, humiliation. And they are very committed on, on the back of sustained economic growth and development now to say, we will reclaim our rightful place. We will not be pushed around anymore. And so in that chapter, when I say sort of taking center stage, again, the, the whole, uh, idea of that chapter, and it's a contribution to a volume that looks at uh, national role conceptions, how countries perceive themselves in the international system. Yeah. So I argue in that, that China is laying the foundation for taking on a, a much more assertive role and potentially challenging or rivaling the, uh, the United States, because th- there is a, um, a significant shift in the distribution of wealth and power that has been going on for a number of years. Yeah. That shift is decidedly going back to Asia again. Now, it's China that draws the attention now. But if you go back to the early 1800s, what you would notice is that both China and India combined accounted for the vast majority of, uh, of the, the global economy. And that is the, uh, the trajectory that the world seems to be on right now. Now, China is ahead of India uh, in, in that sense, but uh, all the projections point to that, uh, I think by the year 2050 or so, that uh, India might really sort of catch up and maybe be number three, if not already number two, and then the U.S. would again be relegated to number three position.
0: Yeah, so, so going back to China, Francis, so you have three stages um, of you know, sort of evolving China. You call it role-taking, which is about 2002, till about 2002, role-bargaining till about 2012, and then role-making uh, after that. So, so one of the things I find extremely interesting, uh, early on, they had what you call a 24-character Strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. and it says, observe calmly, secure our position, cope with affairs calmly, hide our capacities and bide our time, be good at maintaining a low profile, never claim leadership. Um, and, and so, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if we can attribute to any other country uh, to this sort of deliberate strategy that that extended over a thirty year time period?
1: exactly. And, and and this is why it's um you know also quite important to when whenever you study countries, and certainly when it comes to China to really understand sort of the um well uh, the very rich uh, history and the the strategic thinking that uh, emanates from um, you know, sun Tzu and and uh, and and so on. Because that influences very much how the Chinese have gone about it. So, the the 24 character strategy that you alluded to here, well, that was, uh, of course, under Deng Xiaoping. Yeah. And you wanted to learn from the West. You wanted to catch up economically. You wanted to get out of the the Maoist years and the the economic, the socioeconomic dislocation in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution. And so, the, the name of the game was really catching up, but not rocking the boat uh essentially sort of flying under the radar and this is also where why they announced that the 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 uh, the full modernizations hmm. um, you know and military was deliberately the last one um now when it comes to that the the role bargaining that you uh mentioned uh china or the role taking initially when um China was still influenced by that 24-character strategy. Uh, Deng Xiaoping's thinking that you don't want to rock the boat, don't draw unwanted attention to yourself.
0: Yeah. That's the way that you can uh, expand your influence. And they're growing. They're growing at 10% per year during that time. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And uh, so the, the role bargaining that I talk about, that's more when uh, sort of in the... Um, Later in the 2000s, early 2010s, when China realizes that, you know, it has accumulated a significant um, economic clout already. And now combined with that mentality of uh, sort of righting the wrongs of history, it wants to be seen as being given the the respect that it it deserves. So the role bargaining in a way was, yes, we will still, Rise peacefully. That was one of their slogans as well. Uh, the Heping You know, we rise peacefully. Don't worry about us. We are not <laughs> trying to uh, upset the the international balance of power. Uh, we're not a revisionist power in that sense. We have no global ambitions. Although that that can certainly be debated. Um, and then they shifted to peaceful development because it was so sensitive to the reaction that they got in, in the West when um, governments and also scholars and so on were a little bit more hesitant to just buy into this peaceful rise argument. And, yeah, and
0: so, yeah, everybody started noticing it that right? So you have, yeah. uh, you have a quote here from uh, Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellig. Uh, in 2005, uh, he says, China's big, it is growing, and it will influence the world in years ahead. Uh, It's not a it's not a secret anymore. Right. So for the United States and the world, the essential question is, how will China use its influence? And uh, I guess the you know, some in some sense, the Western strategy was to incorporate China into the Western uh, sort of framework or attempt to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I, I don't know how successful that has been.
1: Uh, yeah, not not as successful as they would have hoped for sure. Because I guess they were in that sense more driven by uh, this notion of you know modernization, economic modernization leading to political modernization and reform, so that China over time would become a democracy and then we don't have to worry about things. Of course, what we have seen in China is that economic modernization did not lead to political modernization or liberalization. That, I think, has then shifted the narrative a little bit because that same Robert Zoellick, he had called on China to be a responsible stakeholder in the international system, which basically meant that, well, there are norms and rules of the game. And um, if you want to be an accepted uh, player, uh, we expect you to play by those rules. And I think this is where the the kind of assertive china that we see now under xi jinping yeah definitely more assertive than uh, than previously that china might be saying well yes we still want to be a responsible stakeholder but uh, can we please also influence the um the system can we have a say in the rules and so on
0: yeah, and, you know, think, think about a well-choreographed strategy. You say here, uh, the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympic Games were China's coming out party, the event's official slogan, One World, One Dream, was a thinly veiled attempt to assuage international concerns about China's rights and to project a purported commitment to international order. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it was a beautiful, beautifully conducted um olympic games right they yes they you know they <laughs> demonstrated uh what they are capable of and it's all in the context of what the west really understood
1: exactly and um and then over time what you see is in the you know, we have the uh, the belt and road initiative now as well um and again this is sort of it's it's an economic charm offensive if you will uh, mm-hmm. Here I'm I'm borrowing deliberately a phrase, uh, a title of a book by Joshua Kulancic who um, wrote a book called Charm Offensive and China, where they're literally uh, sort of suggesting that uh, we are trying to help connect countries, become part of the global economy, we help build infrastructure, and why should this be seen as anything other than just us being a responsible stakeholder in a way? Uh, Of course, that's uh, push also has given rise to, well, concerns on the part of the West. Because, for one, I guess the West doesn't have a similar answer to that, certainly not on the scale mm-hmm. uh, that China's uh, uh, rolling out. Could be because the US may not have the financial means to do sort of a, you know, a 21st century a Marshall Plan, because that's what the Belt and Road Initiative is seen as. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a way for China certainly to expand its influence, not just economically, but uh, again, there's a strategy behind there as well, because China has been trying to, in its quest, to be more of a uh, an equal participant, right. equal player, whether that's in international organizations like the World Bank, the, in, the International Monetary Fund, where it was not treated even remotely equal even though it was at one point when it was the third largest economy or now depending on how you measure it it's either the second largest or the largest if you use purchasing power parity basis uh, data or not yeah um but the voting rights that china was granted were very uh, very much lower than the us i think it was on the the US had about 12 or 14% of the voting rights and China had about uh, 3.5. So there's mm-hmm. there's a huge imbalance there. Mm-hmm. And um, so what China was also trying to do was extend its influence uh, through its currency. And it, um, it achieved some of that, uh, I think it was in 2015, if I remember correctly, when the Renminbi or the Chinese Yuan was accepted in that basket of currencies uh, based uh, on which the special drawing rights of the IMF uh, were based on, right. it raised the profile of you know China even in, in the financial sense. Now with the Belt and Road Initiative, yes, China is building infrastructure projects, ports, roads, railroads, and and you name it, um, you know, power plants, dams. But at the yeah. same time, it's giving loans to those countries. And when it beefs up, uh, when it helps those countries develop their economies and it's now trading, it is also laying the foundation for uh, trade uh, flows to uh, or the payments to be conducted in Chinese Yuan. So it's internationalizing the currency mm. on the back of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, as well. And- yeah,
0: so yeah, I, I want to get your uh, insights into this. So you say with the Belt and Road Initiative announced in 2013, and focused on increasing economic connectivity and meeting the infrastructure needs in much of the developing world. Now I know that um, I don't know this is part of the initiative, uh, Francis, but China is also building a road to Pakistan. Yes, and um, and so you know, <laughs> underneath this, uh, is not just infrastructure. Uh, presumably, it is a more it, you know it has military objectives as well because Mm -hmm. we now see sort of an alignment a a sort of a different alignment right um u.s india and and others and so you know uh again you know you you have to really give it to them you know this is this is uh, a true strategic way of thinking about the country
1: yes you're you're absolutely right the 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 china-pakistan economic corridor Yes, it is partly about infrastructure, but uh, at the same time, it connects them to the port of Guadar, which the Chinese also have built, Um, and that's of course um, their strategic value there because that port is one of a number of ports that China has been uh, building or help financing in the um, in the South uh, South China uh, South Asia region and Southeast Asia region because they use a strategy called the uh, the string of pearls configuration. Hmm. Interestingly enough, if you connect some of those dots, they sort of form a nice little ring around the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> uh, so they, yes, there is strategy there for sure. And, yeah. even, and you, you're quite right. Uh, the, uh, the Belt and Road is not just about infrastructure. There is strategic purpose because, and we have seen this in uh, in Sri Lanka, in the, the port of Hambantoto, where the Sri Lankan government got a loan and uh, the loan was uh, probably way more than what the, the Sri Lankan government should have actually signed up for because they were not able to repay it. Mm. And uh, the Chinese uh, have used a very interesting strategy that, that, where they say, well, loan forgiveness, no problem. <laughs> but, but give since the we build, Exactly. Since <laughs> we built the port, we now have control over it. Right. That has given rise to uh, concerns about a debt trap diplomacy Hmm. And it has expanded all the way to Africa now, because this is also where China has a, uh, a phenomenal uh, footprint.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, you know more about this than I do. You know, if you th- think about the Chinese strategy, maybe 10 years ago, you would have thought that, you know, they're trying to lock up raw materials, um, oil production, you know, essentially components of manufacturing uh, and as, as economies progress, that is going to be less valuable strategy. Uh, but that is not the case, right? So I want to get into your other paper, um, Weaponizing Globalization, Chinese High-Tech in the Crosshairs of Geopolitics, um, in, in which, you know, you say in the tragedy of great power politics, John Mearsheimer states, all of the intensity of their competition, waxes and veins, Great powers fear each other and always compete with each other for power. And great powers are rarely content with the current distribution of power. On the contrary, they face a constant incentive to change it in their favor. And we are very much into this now, right? A very much Mm -hmm. a high-tech driven uh, war um, between the U.S. and China.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely unfolding where people are talking about the, the emergence potentially of, of a technology cold war. When you see how Chinese um, you know, tech companies are being uh, uh, treated in their overseas ambitions, I mean, Huawei would certainly come to mind. And where this paper that you're uh, referring to here also is coming out uh, later this year. In, in, uh, this is a two volume edition on, on Huawei in particular. Right. Um, so Chinese uh, overseas investments initiatives uh, in the tech sector are definitely being very heavily scrutinized for the simple reason that uh, China is building up a significant, in some cases, an advantage, actually, mm-hmm. in the, the technologies of the future. And again, it's it's part of a... Um, a dynamic that, that we have seen in a number of Asian countries where you have, um, call it a developmental state approach, which emanated you know, in, in Japan, uh, the Koreans uh, adopted it, where the government has an active role to play in terms of uh, developing the economy, identifying strategic industries that it wants to support with preferential uh, loan guarantees and so on. And uh, so the government in this case, when it comes to the technologies of the future, has really sort of committed itself to ensuring that China is going to become not a leader, but the leader Hmm. in the artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomous vehicles, and so on. It's all part of that Made in China 2025 vision. You add to that uh, their uh, artificial intelligence uh, blueprint, and it really seems to suggest that the Chinese are squarely focusing on... um, uh, on securing sort of the, the high ground or the the commanding heights of the uh, industries of the future. And this is where the competition is unfolding. Yeah, You now have Chinese companies going abroad, like Huawei, which is basically um, the number one leader in uh, in terms of being able to build an entire 5G network. There's not a single American company that can build a full-fledged 5G network on its own. Mm. There's two re- European ones that can do it as well. So when Huawei... Which uh, ostensibly is a uh, is a privately owned company. Um, some people in the U.S. are questioning it because the the head of Huawei used to be an engineer of the People's Liberation Army. Hmm. Um, so when they go abroad and they help countries build um, you know, telecom networks, of course there's some justification for raising concerns about uh, national security. Um, the question then is just you know is uh, is this concern whether it's on the part of the US or the West in general, yeah. overly politicized to the point where any kind of overseas expansion is, uh, or any investment opportunity is overly politicized. And um, politicized in the sense of uh, raising concerns about national security. Can we see that more and more. I mean, recently we've seen it with um, TikTok, and then now WeChat is in the news as well. And it, it seems to suggest that as China is becoming more competent in some of those industries, it yeah. the West a run for its money. It is competing effectively with the West. Now, is it uh, fairly competing? That's a whole different question because the government is certainly bankrolling a lot of this. Uh, yeah, I mean,
0: there is a, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, Francis, there is a difference between tactics and strategy. Right. So, oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's all well, well, and good, you know, for the best to object to a company doing five G. Uh, but what's more important is, you know, Made in China 2025 initiative. It says it is going to focus on next generation information technology, uh, high end numerical control machinery and robotics. Um, you know, uh, aerospace, maritime engineering, rail, rail equipment—that's uh, all fine. Uh, but also new materials, biopharmaceuticals. So these are, you know, sort of the industries. For example, the US believes it has a lead, and and it's essentially saying, yeah, we're going to take all of these industries—not take, but we're going to lead in all this industries. So that strategic initiative, um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's okay to have strategy, but uh, the country has already shown it's it's immensely capable of implementing strategy and it has very competent leaders um, juxtaposed with, I would argue complete incompetence in some of the large democratic countries. Uh, we are probably looking at uh, this this trend accelerating lot faster than even China wanted.
1: Um, that's that's probably true and. Uh... It raises sort of broader questions also about um, you know, education systems. Um, in the, if we look, for example, in um, in the US, but it's also happening in Europe and in Australia. If you look at graduate programs in the fields that you would source human talent from to contribute to those industries of the future, yeah. you would see um, a veritable army of, of foreign students. Most them from uh, probably China and then the second largest would be India and there's South Koreans and so on. And um, so in the past, if, if the US or some European uh, countries are now worried about China's technological prowess, we also need to be doing probably a little bit more soul searching and look at immigration issues because we had students, foreign students that would come to the West and study. Um, we give them the skills. And so we basically educate our own future <laughs> competitors in a way. So should the, should the West have uh, you know, a discussion? Maybe in particular, since we're sitting here in the U.S., a discussion also about how about harnessing that that power, that power, that brain power, um, and making sure that it's not sort of a um, um, a brain circulation, but more of a brain gain for uh, countries like the U.S. If students decide to you know pursue their graduate uh, studies here and what we're seeing now of course is that we we close the door more and more uh, to uh, students again on national security grounds as well Uh, Mm -hmm. in some areas um, specifically Chinese students are not allowed to uh, deal with certain technologies anymore Uh, and that again just sort of doubles down on China's efforts it makes them more determined to achieve uh, in um, in their own country, potentially those um, educational, well, to overcome those educational hurdles and uh, cultivate that that human talent, even uh, even at home, yeah, so we have to look at it not just as sort of it's a um, a deliberate strategic uh, move. It's uh, China has ulterior modus but what are we also doing on the human front in terms of um, you know instilling in in our people the skills. Of the industries of tomorrow,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, So my instincts are slightly different, Francis. So I want to get your perspective on this. You know, I still believe open borders. um, You know, anything that you do on the people side, you know, U.S. almost had a monopoly on essentially going out to the world and collecting uh, the, the best graduate students for a long time. Mm-hmm. and and closing the door on that um i suspect is going to hurt us more uh than otherwise absolutely uh, you know i also believe that you know so for example this podcast there are only two countries that this podcast will not be heard and i don't know what the reason is and it's north korea and china <laughs> and so so the competition is i believe is really in information and any strategy even though China has been quite successful in the first two stages where they had a very deliberate way to get to, let's say they got to a $10,000 per cap GDP, uh, and the U.S. is at $100,000 per cap GDP. So there's just, an, you know, still an order of uh, magnitude difference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to go from 10000 to 100000 is going to require, I believe, for China, a, a very, very different Strategy that they have been they have been pursuing at least that's my instinct,
1: and I would not disagree with uh, with you on that absolutely. Um, and um, if I may sort of uh, put a uh, sort of a, a personal anecdote in in here, um, I have lived in in Asia and even studied there. And what I noticed over the years when I was in in Singapore, um, you have in the, in the, a lot of Northeast Asian, Well, Singapore is in Southeast Asia, but in a lot of those countries, you have an education system that was more predicated on memorization, you know, rote learning, yes. uh, yeah. not a lot of um, uh, out-of-the-box thinking, innovation, creativity. And uh, what I have noticed is that in, in some places, not really widespread yet. Mm. It, it was telling nonetheless that at a time when in the U.S. we have, uh, we haven't thrown it by the wayside, but we have moved a little bit more into sort of the pre-professional uh, focus maybe downplaying the liberal arts a little bit more with where we got a lot of that creativity and innovation from, I mean, even Farid Zakaria wrote about this and in, in defense of liberal education. Yeah. Then I, when I spent time in Asia, I, uh, in, uh, South Korea and Seoul, Seoul national university is focusing a little bit more on, on liberal arts. Uh, now, uh, Todai, uh, Tokyo university in Japan has embraced some of it. Uh, Yonsei university in Korea, um, Beta, I think uh, B- Peking University has uh, done some of that. Uh, in Singapore, the National University of Singapore has a joint venture with Yale University, a uh, Yale NUS college, which is mm. the first full fledged uh, liberal arts college. So, what yeah. we're seeing throughout Asia is a recognition that yes, you can get up to a certain level, mm. uh, but then to really sort of harness the full power of creativity and, and innovation. Something else in society has to change. Um, That's so right. It, yeah. it might still take a while, but uh, I think they're laying the foundation uh, to, to some extent. And China might be a little bit behind there. So they, it's not going to be a very smooth you know, upward uh, trajectory in terms of getting to that same level that the U.S. is uh, at. But you see right. some more of their universities becoming more well-known uh, Tsinghua University is, um, it's more competitive to, uh, to get into than even MIT these days. And it's a, uh, it's a first rate university in, in science and technology already, but they still have a long way to go. So I, I fully agree with you on that. It's one thing to get from basically zero to 10,000. It's going to be a very different ball game to get to, you know, a hundred thousand for sure.
0: Yeah. And you know, uh, it may not be just China, Francis, you know, I, I had my undergraduate education, uh, in India and you know this is another example of an education system that produces a large number of engineers and doctors uh, but you know very little i would say in terms of fundamental innovation mm-hmm. uh, and and you know i don't know the exact reasons for it uh, i believe it is it is related to the education system as you mentioned It's related to sort of a lack of flexibility, early specialization, there could be a variety of reasons around it. And as you say, it's not very easy to change quickly. And so so the next competition that all these countries are looking forward to, uh, I think it's a very, very different competition um, than they're used to, uh, which might give give us a little bit of an extra time uh you know provided we have the we have competent leaders which seems uh less likely um but if that's the case you know we we, we have a little bit more time to do that and you can see this in the micro level you know measuring just r d investment in aggregate uh it doesn't really correlate with innovation
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know you, you can look at it in companies you know large companies spending a large amount of r d money they might get a bunch of patents and then all of that. But at the end of the day, you have to ask, what is that fundamental innovation that they brought forward? And you can find very little in companies that invest a lot. Mm-hmm.
1: That, that's true. And there's there's actually a very interesting uh um, publication I read on this as well. That touches on all those challenges, even for uh, for the U.S. as well. The, in terms of innovation, you know, do we have a full-fledged national innovation policy? I mean, we have some aspects of it, but it's not on the same level as, say, you know, well, South Korea would have it or, um, or, or even China, for that matter. And yeah. The study is a little dated. It's from the early 2010s, I think, and it's called Innovation Economics. And it paints a little bit more of a... I wouldn't say a truly pessimistic picture, but it raises questions even about uh, where the U.S. is going. Um, but even if we have a little bit of more time, um, that should still, you know, give us pause and say, okay, we will, we need to recognize where the challenge is coming from, what the challenge is going to look like, and we should use then today's uh, uh, situation to prepare us for the future. Right. Um, I think if we basically. If all we do is we seek solace in the fact that we can keep in this case, Chinese companies from our shores, or we make it difficult for them to acquire American or European companies. That is, that gives us a certain degree of short-term comfort, mm-hmm. but it doesn't uh, doesn't prevent the ultimate uh, competitive dynamic that's going to come down the pipeline.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you that Francis in conclusion, um, from a U.S. policy perspective, uh, there are a lot of moving moving parts here. Um, but what would be, you know, sort of the one, two, three areas that you will focus on for the next five to ten years for the U.S.?
1: I mean, for one, uh, then this would probably be the really the number one um, issue would be that we can't have the policy that we have right now of uh, sort of deliberately. Steering a, a confrontational course and being much more protectionist, we need more uh, cooperation and coordination or consultation, yeah, uh, than um, than con- potential confrontation because that's the. Uh, it seems that we are on that track right now. Right, uh, the foundation for that actually in the, um, even in the in the Bush administration, under our former Secretary of the Treasury uh, Hank Paulson, when we had a. Um, sort of an annual meeting, it was called the US-China Strategic Economic Partnership. Mm. And uh, I think that was a great initiative, at least even if it's of rival geopolitical powers or uh, competing powers, competition is good, uh, certainly in the economic realm, even in the technology realm. Um, And it's not a zero sum game, right? I mean, yeah. Because it, it keeps you on your toes and it gives you that added motivation um, to, you know, look over your shoulder and, and not take for granted that, well, we were number one, we will always be number one because um, <laughs> that's never going to happen because the, the world is too dynamic. So, yes, it, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, we have strengths that the Chinese don't have. They have strengths that we don't have. Th- there's actually areas where we could, you know, cooperate. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, the uh, if you look at the global economy, it is going to be anchored not just in the, around one economy, but it's going to be, as some people call it, the, the G two, uh, China and the United States. So it's incumbent on, for the sake of the global economic uh, health, for those two uh, economies to to cooperate more, or at least have a productive dialogue. And I think we got off on uh, on on the wrong track there in the last couple of years, unfortunately, um, and we need to get back to that. Um, so that that would be my first one, and, and um, at the more sort of societal level, and this, this would apply to every country, um, we need to really make sure that our future generations or the ones that are in college now, especially in the, in the US, will cultivate really a global mindset so that they can see the, the challenges and the opportunities that are out there overseas. So that we have cultural exchanges, student exchanges, we need more of that, not, uh, not less.
0: Because our markets, in the grand scheme of things, our markets are going to be small percentage-wise in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's um, the, if I could add one, you know, the part of the, the number one that you mentioned, I think we need some way to, to, to have a consistent policy uh, that spans administrations right Yes. Uh, the administration doesn't change in China that is a problem <laughs> they have <to> ultimately <laughs> get to democracy we hope uh, but in the. US we need we need a consistent policy that spans administrations because this is not a short-term thing it's a it's a real long-term uh, strategic question for both countries
1: e- exactly and uh, and that's the the problem unfortunately when uh, yeah, our our policies are very short term. They're, they're driven by uh, electoral cycles uh, more often than not. Um, and and you know, we have seen this uh, under the, the Obama presidency. We had a trans-Pacific partnership um, that was negotiated with a lot of Asian countries. They stuck their neck out, uh, gave us concessions, uh, especially uh, you know Vietnam and Japan. Yeah. Trump administration comes in, and uh, we basically tear it up. Um, so we need something that's more—it's more predictable, more consistent in the in the long term. Because if there's too much uncertainty and unpredictability, yeah. it's not good for for building a long-term relationship with anyone, and certainly not with uh, the the second largest economy in the world.
0: And you know, just not policy, but also companies making investments. If everything changes uh, every four years um nobody can make any investments you know for, for the long term
1: exactly so if, if we see sort of the uh, well the, yeah the longer term picture and all, always for every decision we make we actually look at what are the intended and unintended consequences and if i may close on uh, on this note as well the uh the, the news that came out today um, about uh, you know WeChat and how the U.S. is going to crack down on WeChat. Well, is that just going to be in the United States? What about American companies who are in China <laughs> and, uh, and they rely on on WeChat because uh, if they're now being penalized, um, then that could very well undermine their position in the Chinese market because WeChat in China is, is sort of like a, a Twitter, Uber, Amazon, Facebook and some of our social media outlets that we have in the us combined in mm. one so we may not have thought about the uh, the broader implications of that uh, that initial policy and how it might actually undermine our own economic interest in terms of our company interests in, in China as well
0: exactly yeah this has been uh, this has been great uh, Francis thanks so much for spending time with me and, well thank you very uh, much for the opportunity yeah thanks so much bye bye bye